Hello everyone, this is Maz. If you're hearing this message, it means you're not part of the Voices of War subscriber community and will only hear the first half of the episode. If that's enough, then I'm thrilled. However, if you're looking to dive deeper into the complexities of war, please consider subscribing to our private feed by using the link at the top of the show notes. By doing so, you'll gain access to all of our episodes, the ability to ask follow-up questions, and we'll become part of an exclusive community that makes this show possible. I hope you'll make the decision to join us today. It shows the insidiousness of the Nazi regime as they really started from elementary school to manipulate the minds of the children, to indoctrinate them into becoming really um, thoughtless followers. And while he saw many of his comrades being killed by, by the tanks and by the oncoming army, he was able to destroy four tanks, but saw immediately that the wall of tanks continued to come. He was extremely angry and depressed when he realized what had happened. He felt violated, right? He felt that he had been made to participate in something that he clearly was unaware of, would have been unwilling to do, and was an unwitting participant, but he was made to be complicit. And then it becomes a rule of fear and intimidation, and then you can't speak up, because if you do, you, you will probably not survive, or your family will be hurt. My guest today is Heidi Lundbein Allen, who is a first-time author and who recently published the memoirs of her father, Willy Lundbein, who at the age of 13 was forced to fight for the Nazis. The book is called Save the Last Bullet, memoir of a boy soldier in Hitler's army. I recently finished the book and have found it to be very raw and graphic as it vividly depicts the use of propaganda and misinformation to give moral weight to an otherwise losing and abhorrent cause. It is also a story of lost innocence and despair in the face of circumstances beyond the control of fully grown adults, let alone children and teenagers. With all that said, as we will find out, it is also a story of determination, resilience and hope, nurtured in the ruins of post-war Germany. Heidi joins me today to discuss the lessons we can draw from her father's experiences of the Second World War and how that war impacted her father's life as well as her own. Heidi, thank you very much for joining me on The Voices of War and uh, herzlich willkommen. Uh, vielen, vielen Dank. Well, thank you so much for having me uh, on your show. I'm, I'm really excited to be part of it today. Thank you very much. And uh, just before we dig into the book, which I recently finished, and uh, wow, what a read. Uh, firstly, I can't believe you're a first-time author. I like, just couldn't believe it because the book is written so well and vividly. And um, my heart rate was going up and down as I was reading it because... Uh, it is so alive. So firstly, congratulations on that. That's a r- great effort. Thank you. Thank you so very much. And now I have the bug. So uh, I'm already working on the second one, which is uh, actually an anthology of war stories of young people at the end of World War II. Oh, wow. Okay. Wow. That sounds uh, absolutely interesting as well. And, uh, and, and as, we maybe, uh, as we close out, there's definitely something I'd, uh, I'd like to address. Uh, but before we get to, I guess, this book that, that we're talking about today, um, I mean, as I alluded to in the intro, you are not originally an author. So how and why did you come uh, to write this book? Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. I never I never fathomed that I would ever write a book uh, and didn't set out to write a book. I uh, did, however, bug my father for many years to um, to record his his memoirs. 
uh, because I thought that they were relevant. They were a historical account. They were important. Even then, I could sense it when I was relatively young and continued to to ask him. Uh, but he he really, you know, didn't want to talk about it because, mm. you know, of course, he had PTSD, and these are very painful memories. Mm. Mm. In particular for World War II veterans, I think, uh, on the losing side of the war, in mm. particular mm. for Germany, mm. yeah. uh, because of that, you know, collective guilt and of uh, just— uh, the mandate that he that he received uh, no, as soon as the war ended, he was told never to speak of it again. And so he carried that with him for many, many years. Um, uh, and finally, he relented when he was in his 70s, you know, after he had retired. I think he just started to sort of you know, perhaps reminiscing on his life mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. realizing that, that, uh, that, yes, that it was important enough to put this, uh, this story down, um, mm-hmm. you know, on record. Uh, and then, and then I still obviously didn't think about writing anything other than having that account for my family, right? And so, mm. and, and I I listened to the tapes in fascination. He he put together sixteen audio cassette tapes. That's how wow, yeah, <laughs> that's wow, how it was wow, and, yeah. um, and and managed to get them onto CDs. And then I listened to them, and my sister listened, and we were fascinated. And I put the tapes away for like nine years, and then uh, and then realized um, in twenty sixteen. That um, that my father was getting older, and he was very getting very, very concerned about the the ge- geopolitical events unfolding, the the uh, the increase of of um, you know neo Nazism and just extreme movements, uh, extreme right, far right movements uh, around the world, and um, that compelled me to uh, to pull out those tapes, and I set out to translate them to my family. Because mm-hmm. I wanted my kids who don't speak German and my mm-hmm. husband who doesn't speak German to to read it and to understand that history. And mm-hmm. that then evolved into actually a friend of mine who's a writer saying, oh, no, 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 this is a book. There's a book, and yeah, yeah, I yeah. thought it was crazy, but you know, he, <laughs> he struck a chord. He struck a chord. Mm-hmm. He was right. Uh, and and I realized the importance of it. And, and it made me also, I think, it energized me. Uh, because I thought perhaps that is a small contribution that I can make yeah, uh, toward yeah. the preserving of democracy. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, what I loved about the book in particular, it was written in first person, so it was written as though your father was writing it, yes. which to me was so incredible because even in, in the early stages, the, the, you know, the questions of a child kept popping up. Uh, the 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 attitudes of a child were present. The competitiveness of a child, the trust of a child was so deeply embedded in the words that you were writing, uh, which for me was a really, that was a really powerful side of the book. Uh, but I want to I ask you, when you first listened to the tapes, because you listened to them in first person, how was it for you, firstly, as somebody who's well aware of what had happened in that war, but also as the daughter of the person dictating, I guess, the story? Yeah, you know, it, it was very, it was very emotional. Uh, and it was um, you because you know, didn't know much of this, I'd imagine, right? I mean, because you said it was I you didn't talk some, about it much. You know, yeah, he had, yeah, he had yeah. Given me enough snippets that mm, I knew mm-hmm. that the story was incredibly important. Mm. I mean, just for him to have participated yeah. at that age, at mm. the very end of the war, uh, was was that uh, was appalling, right? It was just it was something that I felt needed to be shared with you know, with present and future generations mm, to, yeah. to perhaps, you know, I mean, encourage some type of thought or reflection yeah. 
you know, know about yeah. about the horrors of, of something yeah. like that happening again. And Which how one sleeps is yeah. is happening, right? Yeah, yeah. and it's how nations right. can sleepwalk into it. I think that's the yeah. that's the you know that's the message that really resonated with me because uh, as as we'll come to talk about it, he wasn't aware uh, well until the very end or even after the war of the uh, of what was ultimately done in his name in the name of the German people. Uh, which exactly. is 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 a huge part of that story, uh, but uh, you also have a little bit of a link uh, to the military because I believe your husband is former U.S. Navy. How did he react when he heard? Firstly, when he found out the story that uh, your father was an active, active. Uh, I don't want to say serviceman because he wasn't a man, but he was an active uh, service child uh, um, in 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 World War Two on the other side. Uh, but also when he heard the story, I mean, because to him, obviously, he would have spoken with different tones, I guess. Yeah. And so, you know, it's interesting, right? Because, you know, I well met my husband who was, you know, an American, when mm. he was an American soldier, when I met him, he was already in the Navy. He's now mm. retired um, uh, in Europe. I mean, he was stationed in Europe. And I was on um, holiday, right? <laughs> and I, was, I was on holiday and, in Italy. <laughs> anyway, minding my own business, but uh, so mm-hmm. we were very young. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, I think he was a bit intimidated by my dad and his history, you know, especially being, you know, that he was, you know, quote unquote, a Nazi soldier, even though mm. he, you know, I explained to him, well, he was 13. Mm. Um, so he, he, and then he felt, I think, compassion in a way, right? Because mm. he, did, well, he's a serviceman, he was. And he was, um, he actually went to the Persian Gulf War. Uh, so he, he's a veteran right. himself with foreign wars. And, uh, and I think he understood and he was fascinated really by it. And my father, on the other hand, was, it was really funny because he, <laughs> he, uh, the, the only thing that, that he, uh, that he basically criticized was, wow, did it have to be an American soldier, really? <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> an army. Because he, yeah. he was taken prisoner. He was yeah, taken prisoner by the course. Americans, of course. So. Yeah, of course. Oh wow, wow. But, but the, the uh, just, just famously though, actually, until the, my dad's uh, passing away. Passing, yeah. I mean, it would have uh, certainly been the bane of uh, many a joke uh, over the years, undoubtedly, right. internally. Um, okay, so we've kind of danced around the topic of the book, but it's probably important for the audience to actually get an understanding, at least in wave tops. What is the book about? And what does it try to address? So the book, in in uh, in its, uh, its narrowest sense, is is the story of my father as told by himself in those tapes. Mm-hmm. So I basically, ghost wrote it uh, for him um, mm-hmm. uh, about his story of being a, a young boy conscripted into a war that uh, that he had. It, no choice, of course, in joining and or any any type of control over uh, or really any knowledge of. And so it shows the insidiousness of the Nazi regime as they really started from, a, you know, from from elementary school on mm. to 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 manipulate the minds of the children, mm. to indoctrinate them into becoming really um you know, thoughtless followers, right? To eliminate mm. really any notion of free will to make them into a questioningly accepting authority. Mm. That that was really the the aim, the goal of, of the Nazi regime and this uh, in the indoctrination of, of young children into a regime. And that is actually a playbook that that mm. is repeated everywhere uh, in the world in autocratic regimes. 
And um, we, we actually see it unfolding today, right, in places like Russia, mm-hmm. with children mm-hmm. already being you know, provided with paramilitary training and, and with, uh, you know, propaganda, really, right, mm-hmm. a massive mm-hmm. propaganda. And, and when, what, how was that in his case? I mean, again, most of us know of World War II and, you know, the propaganda writ large uh, of the Nazi regime. Uh, but I don't think it's very often discussed how that permeated down into, as you say, elementary school. What did that look like for your father? What was he exposed to? What was the information diet, I guess, that he was exposed to growing up? Well, it's very interesting. You know, they, they started changing the, the textbooks in school. Hmm. And hmm. so the narrative changed from things like, you know, um, exalting family and, and church Hmm. to exalting, you know, blood and fatherland, right? Hmm. Words is words starting getting changed. It's literally all in semantics, right? Yeah. But it, it just started words uh, matter, it started right weaving those in and then the glorification of the Nazi regime in children's stories, right? Where hmm. they had, you know, mom sewing uh, the SS uniform of dad while dad was extolling the virtues of the fur. Right and the Hitler, as the fur was was um, portrayed as basically the savior of humanity, right, and of the mm. German, mm. Uh, and that everybody owed him ultimate allegiance because he was um, basically for the children it, he was portrayed as the creator and the protector of everything mm. and the holder of the ultimate truth. Basically. Yeah, and so this goes on, and it, so you know, and we know that from psychology, right? Uh, People, human beings, form beliefs that are very, very deep-seated in childhood, in early mm. childhood. Mm. Mm. And so these beliefs then become so ingrained in the psyche that they're almost impossible to change, right? Yeah. And that, that, was, that was really the, the goal, right? That was the, the objective. And so they started, you know, with the, you know, grade school books and then enrolled the children, the, the male children. Female children also had their own organizations, but they... Mm. They enrolled male children at age 10 in an organization called the Jungfolk, which was the precursor to the Hitler Jugend, the Hitler mm, Youth, mm, that mm, people mm. are more familiar with. But there was this, uh, this in-between sort of uh, like, uh, you know, like with the Boy Scouts, you know, you've got the younger, you know, it was a similar concept, right? And it was actually loosely... Um, inspired by by those organizations, youth organizations that existed before the Nazi regime, mm-hmm. and the Nazi regime just took them over, right? And so in those in those four years, from ten to fourteen, they were in the Jungfolk, and then boys age fourteen to eighteen went into the Hitler Youth, and then in the war years, they were conscripted immediately at age mm-hmm. eighteen into into one of the uh, armed. Uh, forces uh, mm. branches, right? Mm, mm, and mm. so by the time my father turned nine, uh, the Jungfolk affiliation was no longer voluntary, if it mm. ever had been. It certainly wasn't. Mm, mm. Um, in 1939, it became mandatory. Mm. Uh, so my father was automatically enrolled. And they learned games that were, you know, portrayed as as fun outdoor games. But mm. in reality, what they were doing is teaching them how to shoot teaching them how to, how to throw hand grenades, and so to perfect their aim, hmm. uh, to march, to sing military hmm. songs, you know, yeah. all in good fun, but clearly yeah. with a very, very, uh, you know, obscure purpose, right? Well, for boys of that age, I mean, I just think of myself at that age, I mean, you know, but 
all I wanted to do was be a soldier at the age of, you know, 10 onwards. And even before that, I mean, it, it's, it's, yeah. that's just, you know, and to then have, you know, have the opportunity to, to practice how to shoot and throw a grenade. I mean, it all feels so real, uh, which is, uh, and it's so insidious because it's so incremental because, you know, a lot of these organizations like the scouts, et cetera, they have many good qualities that we want children to, you know, enjoy the nature, learn about teamwork, gain independence self-confidence, et cetera, which is some of these kind of traits that these organizations try to inculcate in children. But then as you slowly weave in, and I found it particularly interesting when we talk about the books and the history, how incrementally that changes. And that just I can just reflect on on, on my own experience from Bosnia, uh, you know, post-war Bosnia, how the three warring sides started publishing their own books, uh, history mm-hmm. books, and then history of the war, of that particular war. And it starts already planting the seed amongst the new generation ultimately of the next war, right? It, it, it's because everybody's the good guy. In their own narratives, everybody is the good guy. Uh, and it is the other guys that are the bad ones, the ones that are the cause of all your suffering. And I guess that's absolutely what Hitler capitalized on uh, during those years. But how was it for your father's parents? Because they, and, and you talk about this a little bit in the book, they observed some of these changes. But as almost as an individual, you're almost silenced when the entire system, when it's a structural, systematic change of the narrative. How do they feel about it? Yeah, and you know, the, and that's a very, it's a difficult question to answer mm. because that is, in essence, the, this uh, sort of question that we often ask ourselves, how could this have happened yeah, and yeah. how could ra- like you put it the you know rational people right adults mm, uh, yeah, yeah. You know, fall into this and and I think you said they were you know folks kind of sleepwalk into it and I mm, think that's exactly mm. what's happening and and uh people I think people ask me this question less now than they did before and I believe it's because now we can see it and we can mm. see it unfolding even in this country yeah. right yeah so so there is a and not necessarily you know, in this country, although we are seeing extreme mm. movements here too, and polarization, mm. um, and and so there there can easily ensue an erosion, a gradual erosion of civil liberties and civil mm. rights that mm. is almost unnoticeable, mm. and it is all um, you know basically packaged up in in a way where you know it's it's couched as being to the benefit of the people or for the benefit of the people it's you know for their safety or for their well-being or what whatever the reason might be right Mm. and and then the narrative is typically um you know there's some common themes right there's a there is an enemy image right and just pick your minority Mm, that's right it doesn't matter color creed yeah Um, and, and then you, you throw on top of that, uh, a good dose of telling people what they want to hear, you know, uh, just appeal to their fears and to their worries and, and tell them you're going to fix it. Mm, mm, And that's the recipe. I mean, it's, you know, it's, it's incredibly simplified, but I mean, those are kind of the basic elements and that's exactly what happened. Or you had a depressed country. It was coming out of losing one world war with impossible reparation terms, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, huge unemployment. I mean, it's was, it was devastating depression. I think it was like, uh, was it uh, over half of the male population mm-hmm. of working age was actually unemployed? 
uh, and people uh, were destitute. And so here Mm. comes a man who tells them that he's going to fix all of that and that none of it is 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 really anybody's fault but the the, the bad people which in this case were the Jews right and mm. that and it's their fault and and I'm going to fix it for you mm. and everything's going to be fine and so people want so desperately to believe things like that mm. that I think that is a major contributor to them then overlooking all of the other small flaws that they might actually observe but they don't do anything about it yeah yeah. And then there's also that, you know, uh, passive attitude that really most civilians have where they think, well, it's, right. it's going to blow over, it's going to go away, it'll pass, you know, mm. it's, it's okay. Yeah. And yeah. then it's too late, right? When you yeah. finally figure it out, it's too late. And then you, yeah. you're trapped, right? Then the person's trapped and they can't get out, um, even if they wanted to, probably. Yeah. I mean, it's scary, right? I mean, especially if they promise yeah. to drain the swamp, as a, as a recent example. Drain um, the swamp, yes. Well, as, a, as you know, and this is, this is, I mean, absolutely textbook. Uh, but, but also, again, if I just think back to, to Bosnia, there was absolutely the narrative. It was always the other guy. It was the other guy that was, uh, whose fault it was that you had nothing, that everything was taken from you. Exactly. You know, the, it's always an external enemy uh, that you can blame, which then, of course, justifies, moralizes any actions that are carried on from there, especially when the entire information domain is geared towards that one purpose as it progressively dehumanizes um, and then as you as you start slipping down that slippery slope it becomes much harder to climb out because you've already come this far it's yeah. you know it, it takes admitting that you've that you've you know you've you've gone too far already uh, and that is something very hard to do to admit to yourself that you have now become complicit so therefore you most people double down. Um, to then justify everything that uh, that goes from there. I mean, it's just the again human psychology, right? It, it, a very slippery slope. And then there comes a point, of course, and that happened in Germany, and and it happened, of course, with with the conflict that that you experienced as a child mm-hmm. as well, mm-hmm. where um, then it, then it becomes a rule of fear and intimidation, and then and then you, you can't speak up. Mm. Mm-hmm. Because if you do, you, you will probably not survive, or your family yeah. will get hurt. You know? And we also know from you know decades of research, social science research, that obedience matters, that authority matters, uh, that as much as we'd like to think, oh, I would not have participated, or I would, I would have stood up. Chances are, for 60-70% of those listening, at least that's according to research, uh, no, we would have just uh, either participated or stood by and done absolutely nothing. And I put myself into this. You know, I'm part of this bell curve as well. Uh, you know, just like anybody else uh, walking on this planet. I think I, uh, yeah, absolutely agree. I think uh, the, the the majority of us really can't know until we are in a situation like that what we would do. And yes, I, I agree. I'm sure that at least two thirds or more of people would that would simply keep their head down and try to mm. provide for the, well in, in particular also because the threat is not one to oneself only but typically it's extended to one's family right yeah, to right. make yeah. the threat more or real yeah yeah and salient for those that they, yeah yeah well we see that in russia today if you if you dare to speak up against the state at all i think now it's 15 years jail uh but we all know what that means uh certainly in the russian context uh you know especially now that they're recruiting from the jails Either you're going to die in a jail or you're going to die on a battlefield because you've been <laughs> thrown into a trench with uh, hardly any training. 
uh, as uh, as canon fodder, which I think uh, again is uh, is rather reflective of your father's experience, uh, which uh, again we wouldn't get to. But uh, I'm just interested. At the start, you said that your father got inspired as he was watching geopolitical events turn uh, around that kind of. Uh, well, I think you said 2015, 2016. Was there something in particular that he saw that he observed that triggered him? Um, was it in Germany? Because was he in Germany at that time, or, or where in did Spain. he? In Spain, actually, he was in retired. Spain. Okay. Yeah, in Spain, my mother is is a Spaniard, and and so right. they were um, they retired in uh, Valencia, Spain. In okay, um, yeah, he, Although he did visit, of course, Germany, mm-hmm. but um, he it was just the the general. So you know, and maybe just kind of spoiler alert on the on the on the story, but you know, as he was as he luckily uh, survived the war. Um, and survived also his subsequent depression and regained hope, he determined to dedicate his life to ensuring that he would do whatever mm. he could mm. to not have that repeat itself under under mm. basically his watch, right? Yeah. And yeah. so he, uh, you know, he worked his whole life toward that goal. He actually did he became a lawyer, uh, worked for uh, the German Department of Defense his entire career. Mm. He was in the Foreign Service. Um, he ended his career as the head of a NATO legal division mm. in Germany, in Munich. Incredible, yeah. And he uh, he actually wrote the, he authored the Tornado contract. The Tornado mm. is the NATO fighter aircraft yeah. that is yeah, just yeah. now being decommissioned. Um, mm. And he he actually earned the Medal of European Merit for the advancement of democracy in Europe. Wow! So wow. he really oh, wow. did dedicate his life to democracy, to the advancement and the defense of democracy. And he saw, you know, events unfolding and accelerating. Right? I mean, these mm. started way before 2016. I would say, arguably, even before mm. 2010 mm. already. Mm-hmm. But mm. but they started really accelerating, and in 2016, they became very obvious. Mm, um, mm. And that's when he kind of sounded the alarm and he says, I'm, I'm extremely worried about what, what is going on in the world and that, that everything I've worked for, my, mm. I've dedicated my entire life uh, to, is is not in jeopardy and is in danger. Mm, mm, yeah. And what yeah. motivation he had, I guess, is just, it's just incredible. Uh, and that's what I want to get to next. I mean, there, there, there's obviously a furnace burning inside of him, uh, uh, I guess, to, in a way, uh, probably cleanse uh, some of that guilt that he had. But also because with his own eyes, he saw the absolute horrors uh, of war, both on an interpersonal level, but also on a macro society level. Um, yes. So, so maybe we can uh, delve into some components of, 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 firstly, how did the war start for him, uh, and then what was his war and his combat experience uh, like? Yeah, that's that's a very good uh, question, and I, I think the war, really, even though he didn't know it, the war started for him when they took him away. Right, when mm. the Nazis came and took him away uh, from his parents at age 13 to, mm. you know, under the guise of protection against mm. Allied bombing, you know, yeah. they had that program called uh, the Kinderlandverschickung, which was so mm. loosely you could translate into the, you know, children's relocation program. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was intended really to actually uh, not to protect the children. It was, it was to separate them from the influence of their parents and the church and to further indoctrinate them. And to provide them with military and all paramilitary training, mm-hmm. um, and um, and they succeeded, of course. And so, once he was taken away, he 
you know, he lost contact with his parents, mm-hmm. uh, you know, pretty much completely. I mean, he, he did have that one episode, Christmas at 1943, <laughs> yeah. where he escaped, actually, and, um, and, and saw his parents, but that was the last time he saw them until, you know, until the wars or after mm-hmm. the wars. Mm-hmm. Um, and so that's when it really started, and even whether he knew it or not. Um, yeah. And then soon thereafter, as, as the war was, you know, of course, events were deteriorating, um, they got moved from the city that that they had been placed in, which was on the border with uh, with uh, Switzerland, mm-hmm. the city of Constance. They then moved them to a remote village in the Alps, uh, close to Austria. Whereupon, then uh, he was actually specifically selected because he was uh, tall and big and strong, mm-hmm. and you know, but he was a 14-year-old boy, child, and he yeah. was given two months of military training and then actually called to to go to the front at the very end. Of when you say he was selected, what, what do you mean he was selected? So they went to the, so the SS showed up in the classrooms uh, at this mountain village, and this, we're talking 44 already, mm. um, toward the end of, of 44, and they, uh, it, 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 I don't have the exact times in my mm. head right mm. now, but or yeah, more yeah. or less. Um, and the SS showed up in this compound. Um, the children were actually under the supervision of an of a of a Nazi handler the entire time. So from the point in 1943, in the summer of 43, when they were taken away, they were always under the supervision of a Nazi handler. Mm-hmm. They had taken the whole class of kids uh, together with the teachers mm-hmm. to you know to still continue you know some type of education. But there was a Nazi hammer there at all times to make sure that, you know, the teachers didn't go out of line and said what they needed to say. Um, and then the the uh, SS showed up in at the end of 44 and actually selected uh, boys who looked strong enough. And um, they didn't care. The kids were 14 years old. They knew the kids were 14 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, uh, and they picked them out specifically. They actually picked only three, the, the tallest and biggest, and my father mm-hmm. was one of the three. Mm-hmm. Um, and they selected them to actually get it conscripted into one of the armed forces and put in 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 combat. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and that happened in March of 1945. And this is to, to, to be part of the, well, at that point in time, certainly the elite SS, right? So, well, they gave them a choice, which is interesting. Mm. Um, I guess the, the entire military apparatus was in such disarray that they desperately needed folks at the front. Mm. So mm. they gave them a choice whether they wanted to uh, join the SS, the elite force, and with promises of food and mm. seeing their mm. parents um, because, of course, everybody was starving. I mean, there was no food. Uh, my father was, you know, uh, always, he's, he remembers being always hungry. Everybody mm-hmm. uh, everybody was uh, was really undernourished. Yeah. Um, the, the other option was to go to the Wehrmacht, which is the regular army, because mm-hmm. they so desperately needed uh, people. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we ended up at, um, in, at the end of March in a battle that was actually famous. Um, but he didn't, he never knew it. Until much, much later. Mm, until much later. And I want to get to that battle in a second, yeah. but I'm just keen yeah. to keen to double click on why he ended up going for the Wehrmacht rather than well, yeah. the elite SS. Oh, because the SS well was very creepy and mm. that didn't get lost on, on anybody. And and he witnessed the SS 
execute one of his classmates right in front of him, right? Mm. Um, because they that that boy had dared steal some butter and some ham from the mm. devil. Yeah, and that's a and and let me talk about collective punishment. I mean, uh, maybe describe that scene because I think that's again another powerful scene of the again the the indoctrination and the forced submission to authority and unquestioning loyalty to the cause yeah, or sacrifice I mean, it, to the cause. Yeah, it was a brutal regime. Right? It, it was mm. a, a regime of, of fear and intimidation, and they, uh, the Nazis were extremely swift in, in their punishments and mm. um, and very... Um, they, they, made, they made an example, like I said, they made an example out of this boy's uh, having stolen some food Mm. Uh, to to show the resolve of the Nazi regime and how um, you know misconduct was not going to be tolerated and the mm. the the you know the the worst punishment was going to be meted out to people who would dare disobey in any mm. way. Mm. Yeah, and it was a if I remember correctly, it was a firing squad with everybody. You know, the kid, the, the rest of the boys forced to watch. At least, or at least the young and the the teacher managed to convince the SS to at least let the youngest uh, go away but I think it was something it was 13 and above everybody was forced to watch the I guess the execution by firing squad of their yes, key of yes, another boy. I know that yeah. was absolutely that was absolutely the the aim of the SS was to instill in these boys absolute obedience uh, mm, and yeah. fear of authority uh, and so cool. yes they made them watch so they, the boy you know they were desperately hungry so the boy just went mm. and swiped some 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 ham and some butter and the, these kids the kids had been uh, stealing food wherever mm. they could because they were mm. starting mm. um and and he of course didn't realize the consequence um and the poor boy was caught and um and then uh yes they the ss made the other boys watch him being executed and by firing squad yeah uh, i mean just to, i mean this is this is just unfathomable uh, but, you know i'm sure it happens Elsewhere today, child soldiers uh, across Africa, etc., uh, at even younger ages, uh, are forced to even partake uh, in uh, the murder of, of, a, of a peer to, you know, uh, to blood them in a way, uh, but also to share that guilt uh, of the murder mm -hmm. uh, in, in a way. Um, but yeah, that's just, I mean, it's just incredible how cruel and ruthless uh, that is and what kind of scars that must leave on a young child's, child's mind. Um, from there, your father then went to the front, uh, and as you said, unbeknownst to him, he was to be in a in a rather famous battle. Um, uh, what what happened? Yeah, so um, they got picked up and uh, on March the eighteenth, and the reason I know that is because the, um, my father, you know, then it relates in his memories that um, the his his town, the town of Witten, uh in the Ruhr Valley, close uh, to mm. Dortmund and Cologne. Mm. Uh, was bombed in the morning of the 19th of March uh, and raised right. to the ground. And he never knew that because they were listening to ham radios. They had some communication with the mm. outside world in that village. But since he had been picked up mm. just before, the, the, literally the, the afternoon before, he never knew what had happened mm. in, in, you know, with his town his until town, yeah. the end of the war. Uh, so he... Uh, he was taken uh, with his other two comrades to the front, to the Eastern Front, right? They made their way to the Eastern Front, which was in Austria. 
to stave off the advance of the Russian army. Mm, mm, mm. Uh, and and there, you know, there was really absolutely no thought that they would make it out alive. Right? And you know, they weren't told this, but you know, there was really um, no intent of of having. Did he them feel that as well at the time? He didn't know that. He mm. he figured it out pretty quickly once mm, he was mm. in the battle. He realized that this was just even with the weapons he was getting and and the type mm. of battle he was in. He realized I mean the chances were overwhelmingly against them. So they um you know they made it to the Eastern Front and he participated in the Battle of Wiener Neustadt, which was the last battle before the invasion or liberation rather of mm. Vienna by the Russian forces. Right. So uh, it was the either second or third Ukrainian army that actually beat them back, beat the Germans back uh, in that battle of Wiener Neustadt, which was the last battle before before right. they, they entered Vienna. And what was that? And, and I think that was his first battle. And that was his first battle. And yeah. what was that like? What happened? Well, it was just uh, been absolutely terrifying. I mean, you know, they were, uh, they were um, made to, of course, dig the foxhole. Mm. Um, at about you know a man's height mm. uh, to to fit in, and they were outfitted with four Panzerfäuste, which are mm. Mm. the the single fire weapons, which are yeah, I guess, weapons, akin yeah. to a bazooka. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, it they only fired once, and they were given four. <laughs> um, and and that was that. And then they had a machine gun and uh, and a pistol, mm. and they were instructed <clears throat> to keep the last bullet for themselves because the Nazi handlers told them that under no circumstances should they be captured by the Russians because the Russians would torture them before they killed them. And mm. that was a fate worse than that. Wow. And I guess that's also where the title of the book comes from, but also it's yeah. the picture of a boy holding a Panzerfaust, uh, which, which is a really vivid image because it's, it, is a, it, I mean, it, it, it is distinctly a child that's, that's, you know, that's on the cover and save the last bullet really, really stands out. Uh, and I think that's, uh, again, for a child of 14, I mean, to save the last bullet. Uh, and I think in your father's case, he did end up saving his last bullet, uh, as he was told. But uh, I guess to his great fortune uh, and the misfortune of someone else, that bullet ultimately wasn't reserved for him. Is that is that right? That, that's correct. He... Uh... And I don't think he really intended it that way. I don't, you know, I don't know how much mm, mm. thinking goes mm. on, right? In in terms of just its survival mode, I imagine when you're in a battle like that, he was a a, a good marksman. Lucky for him, and while he saw many of his comrades being killed by by the tanks and by the oncoming um, army, you know, the foot soldiers that were behind mm-hmm. it, he mm-hmm. he was able to uh, destroy four tanks. Uh, but saw immediately that the wall of tanks continued to come. So he was going to get mm-hmm. run over just like some of his comrades had been. And um, and then tried to uh, get out of the foxhole, shot all the ammunition he had left um, in his machine gun, and got left with the pistol that was, that, mm-hmm. was, uh, that was all he had left. And so he ended up with just one bullet, um, at which point he fell into this into the hand of hand combat where he used it against his aggressor, who did manage to very seriously wound him with a bayonet. And and the and the, the other soldier was um, my father recalls that he was a Russian kid 
<laughs> not much older than he was himself. Yeah. But he had yeah. to make that split second decision and the kid was going to kill him and, and almost managed to and split his leg open, um, you know, from the knee on down uh, and actually hit, I, it looks like he hit an artery. Uh, right. And my father had to shoot him, obviously. Mm, mm. And uh, he also, well, because of his wounds, he barely survived, right? He barely survived. He he was very lucky that uh, a couple of comrades uh, who were fleeing the, the battle uh, grabbed him and were able to tourniquet his leg. Uh, just to, I guess, just giving him enough uh, strength mm, to to mm. make it out of the the yeah. field and into the back area where the the trucks were and the, and the reinforcements. Um, well, not the reinforcements. Actually, the rest of the division, whoever was left, was there. Yeah, and yeah. was able to um, to get. If you'd like to hear the rest of this episode and gain access to all of the episodes of the Voices of War, simply become a subscriber using the link in the show notes. As you know, I will not feature any ads on the show, which is made possible solely through the support of our subscribers. If you find value in the content, you can become one now.